All right, looks like we should get started. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 8. They're being hospitable? Okay. Practicing it, practicing what we preach. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and that's where we'll begin in a moment. But before we get to 1 Corinthians 8, I know Phil covered 1 Corinthians 7 last week. And um, I was glad for him doing that, filling in. I knew Phil was going to be filling in for me at some point. I didn't know where it would leave off, and it just happened to be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I just want to make sure, do we have any questions on chapter 7 before we move forward with chapter 8? Alrighty then, the coast is clear. Alright, in the next few classes, and I believe we have about five more, there may be some clustering of the chapters, but... That's a good thing, especially considering the context we're going to be in. So 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10 go together. Chapter 11 kind of goes with that, but it's a standalone about the Lord's Supper. 12 through 14 combined talk about spiritual gifts. Chapter 15 is on the resurrection. And then chapter 16, Paul says some things about contribution and ties up some loose ends about his travel plans. But what we're going to try to cover today is 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. And so... I just want to go into a little background of this and then we'll dig into the text. It's important that we have some appreciation for what's going on in chapters eight through ten so that we can see what Paul's saying and what he's not saying. But it's very practical in our times for dealing with each other with differences. So in first Corinthians chapter eight, what you have is in chapters eight, nine and ten is really a discussion on Christian liberty. And there would be some individuals who came from this pagan Gentile background and sometimes they would eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul is saying, and the Corinthians are writing to him about certain questions. And now the question is, hey, Paul, now that we're Christians, can we still eat this food that has been sacrificed to idols? After all, it's just what? It's just food. And so in chapter eight, Paul's going to talk about some of this. You've got what we would call the weak brother and the strong brother. The strong brother says, hey, I can do whatever I want. It's just food. It doesn't bother me. And Paul says, "Okay, some of that's right, but. I've got some problems with you going into an idol's temple and eating food that have been sacrificed to idols. They're in there worshiping these gods. They've got sort of a mindset of what's going on as they're doing that. I want you to hold off on doing that. And then in chapter nine, he gives himself as an example. Paul says, look, I'm an apostle and I've got liberties and freedoms. But look at all the things I gave up. I never took money from you, Corinthians. I worked and other churches supported me. I've preached in different places and taken on the local customs of those individuals. Paul is saying, look, I know a lot about giving up personal liberties and freedoms. And I want you to learn from that as well. And then finally, in chapter 10, Paul gives his conclusion and then some admonition. And Paul says in chapter 10, the answer to whether or not you can eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols in the idol temple. Paul says you can't. And then he goes on to say, now, however, if you find yourself at somebody's house and they set the food before you, well, you just eat the food. Don't ask any questions. But if they say in the process of the eating, hey, I got this from the idol market and we sacrifice. He said, well, then you shouldn't eat of it. Not because it's going to bother you. You know, it's just food. But for the sake of the conscience of the one who offered it to an idol, he might think you're what? He might think you're worshiping the idol. And Paul says, we don't want to do that. And so chapters eight, nine and ten are about this real life scenario that would have been true for a lot of the Corinthians. They had these Roman guilds or fellowships. And if you were a construction worker, all of your construction buddies, when they got off work, would go to these various places and eat and partake of these things together. And you'd be the odd person out. And the Corinthians are saying, hey, Paul, look, we've got knowledge now. We're smart. We know it's just food. It's not going to hurt anything. And Paul has something to say about that, which is it just might. It just might hurt your brother. 
All right, and so this is about the meat that's been offered to idols. Um, meals were very important in this society. They said a lot about worship. The meat that they would eat would be divided up into several sections. A part would be burned before the God. Another part would be given to the worshipers. And another part would be placed on the table to the God. And the individuals that officiated would then eat and partake of that. These meals were both social and religious. The Gentiles probably had attended these meals all of their lives. And now they're struggling to part ways with them. And so can we go into these temples and eat this food or not? That's the question. So let's look at first Corinthians chapter eight. It's just 13 verses. I'm going to read it in its entirety and then we'll get into it. All right. First Corinthians chapter eight, beginning with verse one. Now concerning. Remember that phrase now concerning. What does that mean now concerning? They wrote to Paul about something before. And now here's Paul's answer. Verse one. Now concerning the food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence or an idol is nothing and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However... Not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged or emboldened if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. All right. So chapter eight of first Corinthians. Oh, I've got to turn it on. All right, here we go. Let's begin. Christian liberty. The first thing Paul talks about is the danger of knowledge. All right. So remember, some of the Corinthians are strong. At least they believe themselves to be intellectually strong. And in, in, in every congregation, it's not really a church thing in every area of life, but definitely in congregations. There are these two categories of people who you might consider the strong and the weak. Paul doesn't want them eating the meat when it's in the idol temple because that would communicate worship. So Paul uses two arguments. The first one is here in chapter eight, and it is think about the weak brother. And the second one he'll make is in chapter 10 when he says you can't have fellowship with the idols. But there are two groups normally, the strong and the weak. The strong person says, I'm intellectual. I'm smart. I know this is wrong. I know it's not anything wrong with it. I can do it. But Paul's saying, hey, that may be you. But notice verse seven. However, everybody doesn't have this knowledge. What about the weaker Christian who sees you in the idol temple? And what is this weaker Christian going to think? We're worshiping the idol, number one. But there's something else that goes along with that. What else? If they think you're worshiping the idol, I'm a new convert. I come in and I see you at the idol temple eating this steak dinner, right? That's been sacrificed to Zeus or Artemis or something like that. Not only will I think you're worshiping the idol, but what might it do to me? I'm hearing. I don't know. (laughs) It might encourage you to. You might think it's all right then. Hey, I thought we got converted out of this idolatry, but evidently brother so-and-so has been a Christian for so long. And he, Paul says you've got to think about more than yourself. So let's start off with the danger of knowledge. So look at verse one concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Some 
translations have that in quotes. Maybe the Corinthians were saying that to Paul. Hey, we know our stuff. And so Paul starts out by saying, "Okay, it's great that you've come to know that idols are no good. They really don't exist except in people's imagination. That's great. But notice what he says at the rest of verse one. Knowledge puffs up, but love does what? Build up. How did they come to know that idols weren't anything? How did they come to know that? Who taught them that idols weren't true gods? Paul had taught him. Yeah. In Acts 18, when Paul went to Corinth and he had preached to them the gospel, he's the one that told them this. And so Paul would agree with this. OK, you have knowledge. That's great. But knowledge can be dangerous. Right. We need to have some knowledge about idols and that they don't really exist. But if our hearts aren't right, knowledge can be dangerous on idols. Briefly, turn to Psalm 115. 115 and notice verses four down through verse eight. Paul's going to say some things throughout chapter 8 about idols and that they aren't anything. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols, or the idols of the heathen, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. And so the psalmist is saying what everybody in the world should know. You become like what you worship. And everybody's going to worship something or someone. Humans don't have a choice in that. That's just how we're wired. Everybody worships someone or something. And you're going to become like what you worship. You are becoming like what or who it is that you worship. And so Paul's glad that the Corinthians had done away with idolatry. Hey, the knowledge that you've learned about the true God, that's great news for you. But... Knowledge can be dangerous. Beware of letting knowledge puff you up. So what's the difference in verse one? What does Paul mean? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. How does knowledge puff us up? Oh, well, (laughs) how does knowledge puff us up? It makes us think we're right about it. Everything. Okay. Pride. How does God treat the proud person? How does God treat the proud person? What does God say about pride? It comes before a fall. What do we mean when we say this about somebody Um, as they may learn some things and begin to advance? Somebody says, don't get the big head. What does that mean? Don't think you know more than you know. Don't get boastful. Yeah, don't think it's come from you and you alone. And so Paul's telling the Corinthians, hey, if anyone imagines in verse two that he knows something, he doesn't know it as he should. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. And so God treats the proud in a harsh way. And he does battle against the proud because ultimately the only know it all is who? Is God. And so we all should be humble just because the Corinthians think they've graduated to this degree of we've got knowledge about idols. And now we go into these temples and we just zero out. You know, I'm strong. I zero out all the idol worship and all that. Paul, I'm just going in there to eat. Paul's saying not so fast. I know what you know. I know idols aren't anything. I know it's just food, but there's more involved in this. And maybe your inflated ego of your own knowledge is causing you to block out some of those things. So Paul talks about the danger of knowledge, and then he gives the truth about idols in verses 4 through 6. He says, as to the eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And so what does this tell us about meat offered to idols? If an idol has no real existence, then what? 
It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, when they're offering this to an idol, they're not offering it to anybody. It's just food. Isaiah has a long section in this, and you might read Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. He talks about the folly of a man who would go into the woods, cut down a tree, make a fire with half of it, burn his food over half of it, and then take a hammer and nails and jewels and deck it out and then fall before it and say, aha, my God. And Isaiah summarizes it by saying, after you've done all of that, can't you see when you pick up the idol, can't you say to yourself, I have a lie in my right hand? Because you've done all this other stuff. You've made the God. The God hasn't made you. So Isaiah is saying, think through some of these things and don't be so foolish. And so though people worship idols, idols aren't truly gods at all. Verse six, for us, there is one God, the father from whom are all things and from whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, from whom all things and through whom we exist. So far in first Corinthians eight, one through six, whose side does it seem like Paul's on the side of the strong that says eat it or the side of the weak who would be concerned about eating it so far? What do you think Paul is saying? He's going he's going to say that in seven through 13. But so far in verses one through six, when he says there's only one God, we know it's just food. Don't let it bother you. What would you be thinking initially? He's saying he's on the side of who he may seem like he's on the side of the strong. Hey, it's just food concerning what you wrote to me about idols. We know they're nothing. We know there's no. And if you were in the strong camp and this letter was being read before the congregation, you might be ready to go on out the back door to the idol temple and eat and think, hey, no big deal. I can partake of this food. But then in verse seven, there's a key word. However, right, which means all's not well. And Paul says, I want you to consider others. And that's how he rounds out this chapter by saying, consider others. Not everyone looks at the food in the idol temple as just meat and probably engaging in this behavior before their conversion. They will still associate it with meat that's been offered to idols and it would be a danger to them. Food doesn't ultimately matter. That's his point in verse eight. But it does matter to these individuals who would be who would find this to be a stumbling block for them. And so we need to consider them. Christian liberty, Christian freedom. God gives it to us. We can engage in certain activities. Sometimes Paul will say all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient or all things aren't helpful. We should think about Christian liberty, but our Christian liberty is ultimately given to us in order to serve others, not to lavishly spend on ourselves. Look at a few passages. Go to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five and notice verse one. Galatians 5, 1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery or the yoke of bondage would have been the Old Testament system with all of its rules and regulations. And it shackled people. Nobody could keep the old law perfectly except Jesus Christ. And so the Galatians were tempted to go back into this old law system. Paul says, you've been set what? You've been set free, but it would be a mistake to read the New Testament. And some people still do this in 2021. Well, I'm a Christian. All those rules and all those regulations, I'm free to do whatever I want. But look at Galatians 5 and verse 13. He says, brothers, you've been called to freedom or liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but by love, serve one another. So now that we're free from the regulations of the old law, we're free to break loose with all of the love that God wants us to engage in. And that's why in verse 14, he says, this is all about loving your neighbor. People that were the strong in the church in Corinth that would just go into the idol temple and eat because they felt like it didn't bother them. They had forgotten that their freedom was ultimately about helping other individuals as well and not discarding their conscience and saying, well, it doesn't bother me. We'll get to some real practical applications for us today. I know we don't have this problem with meat sacrifice to idols. And you may be thinking as you're hearing this simple enough. Why didn't they just get it? But I'm telling you, 
we've got the same problems in the churches throughout the world today with people think, well, this doesn't bother me. Why does it bother them? Or they're just so weak. I can't believe they think that's a big deal. I mean, come on. There's really we need to be careful. Daryl, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. And in Philippians chapter two, after he says that he's going to go into what Jesus did. Right. He was in the form of God. He offered himself up for us. And so Jesus gave up the glory of heaven and some of his divine privileges to come and die for us. And we should be thinking about other individuals as well. Right. Yeah, that may be right. But I'm going to say, well, let's just go with that. Let's use cards then from Uno to Vegas. Let's just use that. Right. So let's take that stance. I think that's right. Who would be the weak person in that regard? The person playing the cards or the person that thinks, oh, no, this is going to lead to gambling. Which one of those individuals is weak? Everybody. Who, who, who's the weak person in that in that arrangement? The person that thinks, hey, I can play cards. No big deal. Or the person that thinks, oh, no. If you start playing spades and bridge, you're going to be gambling. Which one of those would Paul consider the weak person? The one that thinks it's going to lead to gambling. The person with the restrictions in that context would be weak. But here's what Paul says in 7 through 13. Consider them. Now, they don't get to make laws and bind for other individuals. And we have grown, but we might be tempted to mock those individuals. That's what I'm saying. We might think. I can't believe they still think like that. Well, maybe there's some form of association. Look back at first Corinthians eight and verse seven. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through form of association with the idols eat it as a thing that's been offered. And so Paul is saying, hey, because of some things in their past, they haven't sorted this out in their minds. And I'm telling you to be sensitive toward them. Now, hopefully in that situation, and I think we're dealing with two different things with that, but it's a good example Hopefully an individual can at one day mature to the point that they just see it as cards. But in the meantime, those of us who know it's not a big deal, we shouldn't mock that individual or belittle them because you might very well cause them to stumble. So I think where it may have been one way before where you had, hey, all of the week making laws and saying, you know, no plans, cards, and you could list a number of things under this category. Yeah, it might have turned and maybe our thinking is more balanced on this, but we need to be careful that we don't become puffed up. What did Paul say? Knowledge does what? Puff up. And once you learn a little something, you're like, it's just cards. I, used to, I remember when I used to think like that, too. Trust me. I know what that's like. Paul says, beware. Knowledge puffs up. But what will build up? Love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. And we prize knowledge a lot. Knowing your stuff. Oh, this person's very smart. But knowledge is not a fruit of the spirit. It's important. You need to know the Bible. The truth will set you free. But knowledge isn't a fruit of the spirit. Knowledge isn't evidence that God's living in you. That doesn't mean anything. You know what will tell. If you really love, if you can balance this idea of being with the weak and the strong, Paul's going to show us how he did it in chapter nine, verses 19 through 27. But it is a good point. We don't get to take our weaknesses and then make laws out of them. But we also don't get to take our strengths and belittle those that may be weak for various different reasons. All right. And so that's what Paul's going to work out. So in this, does somebody else have a question? Oh, go ahead. Can, Can you imagine being a Jew your whole life? And one of the ways that you could really determine a Jew from a Gentile was through the right of circumcision. And now you're dealing with people that aren't circumcised and you're saying, hey, it's really no big deal. It was a difficult thing for people to process. If you've been doing something your whole life, I'm going to give you one. This may offend some people, but this is first Corinthians eight through ten. Some people have grown up their whole lives wearing shirts and ties to worship and they can't fathom. They can't get it out of their mind. Why would a person ever come to worship without a tie? Now, I've got no problem with it. I like dressing up, but 
You can read Matthew through Revelation and then you can read it backwards. There's nothing in the Bible that regulates what is reverent clothing and what we wear. But if you've grown up your whole life in that context and coming to worship in that way, it would be a huge deal to see. I can't. Now, I know there's a we can go too far with this casual dress. I understand that. But we can also uphold what we think is religious and right and giving God our best and all the arguments that people have come up with that just really don't sit with what the New Testament says. And so we might mock the Jews and we might mock other people that have grown up with these things in mind and say, how couldn't they get over that? But I'm telling you, we've got some of our own that sometimes it's hard. It's just hard to divorce with. And so, you know, what's going to solve all of this. Love and dealing with one another, according to knowledge and being patient toward each other and doing what we can to say, OK, I want to try to help this person come along, whether they're weak or whether they're strong. In this context, the weak person would be defined as somebody who has some sort of limitation that lacks advanced knowledge or lacks strength in some area. And so here Paul says, I want you to think about the weak person and think about how it might affect his what? He uses a C word. It might affect his what? Starts with con, ends with shins. Conscience. Yeah, that's right. It might affect his conscience at the end of verse seven. And it may be defiled. I'm going to give you just maybe four or five questions to always run through before you engage in an action or an activity. Think about these things before you engage in any activity. This was taught to me in preaching school. Brian Kenyon harped on this. And I've, I'll add, if there were children in here, I would add on one and I'll give it to you. But here are some things to think through before you engage in any activity. Number one, is this action sinful? If it's sinful and it's against God, then it's automatically out. Right. If there's a thou shall not or if there's a principle taught in scripture that says, hey, you can't engage in this. Well, then we need to abstain from it because the wages of sin are death. Romans six twenty three. Sin will separate you from God. You clear that first barrier and you say, well, it's not violating God's conscience. It's not a sin against God. Here's the second barrier, though. Does this action violate my conscience? It may not be a sin, but it may be a personal scruple that you possess, something that your mind's been trained to believe. I just can't do this. You know, I just can't do this thing. Well, Romans 14 and verse 23 says, if you violate your own conscience, that's a sin and you can't do that. So is this a sin against God? What does the Bible say? Nothing. OK, great. Can I do? Well, does it violate my conscience? Clear barrier number two. You say doesn't bother God, doesn't bother me. Well, the coast isn't clear yet. There's a third barrier and it would be this one. Does it cause a brother or sister to stumble? If it does, I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm saying where you do it and how you do it, you may need to take some of that into consideration. It's not just, well, it doesn't bother God. God didn't say anything about it, and it doesn't bother me. Paul says there's a third thing that comes into the equation. Will it cause my brother to stumble? And then a fourth one would be, will this hurt my influence with non-Christians? 1 Corinthians 10, 27 through 29, that's Paul's argument. He says, hey, if they set the meat before you, just eat it. But what if they say, it's been offered to idols. You can't eat it. Why? It didn't become magical meat. It's not idol food. It's just the other person might think that it is. And so if it's going to cause others to stumble who aren't Christians, you need to think about that. And then if there were children in the room, I would say after you've cleared all four of those, you still have to think about this one. What do my parents say? Because sometimes kids go through this lit and they say, well, it clears all of those. But there's an added element for individuals that are still under the jurisdiction of mom and dad. And it is, what do my parents say? Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. I've got to honor them. That's some of what Paul is laying down. Okay, it's just food. I get that. Evidently, you're strong and it doesn't bother you. That's fine, too. But now what about they couldn't clear barrier number three? They couldn't because in verse seven, he says it might cause the weaker Christian to stumble. And we should be thinking about that. And so we should be asking ourselves before we move on to chapter nine, do we care about weak brethren? And what does this imply about our relationship? 
Here's another question. How would you know if you've caused somebody to stumble? How would you know if you've offended a weak brother or sister? How would you know? You might not. That's part of it. But how can we find out? How can we get to know? You can ask them. That's one thing. Observation. Hopefully they'll come and ask you. Okay. Yeah, okay. What about this? The more time we spend with each other, when you really get to know somebody, you're going to find out their areas of weakness and their scruples. If you don't know a person, you can't read anybody's mind, so that's not our fault. But if our relationships are just sort of shallow and on the surface, we're never really going to know each other like we should. Until we graduate past the high and by, how's it going, great, foyer talk, we're never going to really know each other. But when we really get to know each other, then we'll be able to penetrate deeper than just on the surface things. And so we need to be careful about areas where somebody might stumble. Um, you could think about several of these for some people. I'm going to just give some of these because um, some of these may cause us to think. But like holiday. Oh, go ahead. Really? Not necessarily. No, I think you're thinking right. The sin. It could lead to sin. Yes. Yeah. The stumbling block could eventually. Yeah, no, you you can't. And here is the thing. Let's back up a step and be clear about this. And I think Dwight was getting on this earlier, too. An entire congregation of God's people can't be held hostage by the conscience of weak members. So you can't just say, well, we don't want to offend so and so. But the point is, and you you bring up a good point and clarify something. You don't want to lead a person to sin. Right. We do have to develop thick skin and we don't want to just tiptoe around one another all the time. But we need to be careful about what might cause somebody to sin. And Paul is saying this meat that's been offered to idols, eating it in the idols temple. And that's key because in chapter 10, Paul's going to say something else. And if you don't stick with Paul's thought process, you might think Paul's saying it's either or Paul's conclusion. So far as I can see it in chapter 10, especially in verse 14, where he says flee idolatry is that they were not allowed to eat the meat that was in the temple. But when Paul talks about what's going on outside of that arrangement, when he says, look, if somebody offers it to you in their home or something like that, then it's a different matter. You're still not free to eat. There are some questions that you've got to go through, whether or not it's going to be a stumbling block for this individual that thinks you're worshiping idols and a host of other things. But, yes, the stumbling block is what will eventually lead to sin. And the hurt feelings discussion is a different one. But, yeah, we can't be overly um, sort of hamstrung by everybody that says something hurts their feelings or we all would be up there every Sunday, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes people's feelings do get hurt. We need to be concerned about that, but not crippled by it. And then Phil. Yeah, I think like the discussion you're talking about, maybe I think it's in a different context. Paul and the Judaizing teachers and Jesus with the Pharisees. The biggest problem in the first century church was not liberalism, per se, people loosing what God had bound. It was with people making up rules and making their own laws and binding what God hasn't bound and saying, hey, if you really love the Lord, you'll do these, 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 these things. Right. That was the biggest problem in the first century. That's not really what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians eight, nine and ten, though. What Paul's talking about here is about people that think their liberty allows them to do something that God says is going to cause some problems, not only for others, but also for yourself. So you're right about Jesus's problem and even Paul's problem with the Judaizers. But what Paul's discussing in chapters eight, nine and ten about individuals that are eating this meat sacrifice to idols would fall in the other camp. It would fall into the camp of thinking liberty now allows me to do some things that may have some other consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And again, I, I think all of that's right. And keep in mind, all of these are good comments. 
But I'm just going to hold our feet to Paul's fire in First Corinthians eight, nine and ten. That's right. Do I agree with you? We need to educate the weak and all of that. The only problem with it is Paul doesn't say that here. Paul doesn't say anything about the weak going to class. He's talking to the strong about some things that they need to fix. And that's true. There will be a time to educate and make sure that they grow up and mature. But that's not really Paul's true admonition in these chapters. What Paul is saying here is consider the weak person. He's going to use himself as an example in chapter nine. And then in chapter 10, he's just going to outlaw it all together and say, you can't have fellowship at the Lord's table and at the table of demons because they're going into the temple eating this food. Paul has a problem with that. So I think you're talking about a good thing. I just think it's kind of a, one of the spokes. It's an offshoot to what we're discussing, but not at really the heart of what Paul's saying. Right. That's right. One more thing, then we'll get some more comments. One of the important things to remember is this. This is why the Bible must be studied in its context. And what I mean by that is this. You might do your daily Bible reading and you might get to first Corinthians chapter eight and you read chapter six, seven and eight. And then you close the Bible and you say, well, it seemed to me Paul didn't have a problem with the idol meat. But if you read the whole chunk of it, chapters eight, nine and ten, Paul's making one argument now concerning. He starts in chapter eight and verse one. He's not done until chapter 11, verse one, when he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus Christ. Isolating chapter eight, separate and apart from nine and ten, which is how we kind of learn to read the Bible. Spot here, spot there and not taking on whole books and whole sections of thought together can lead to us coming to some erroneous ideas and saying some things that Paul never said. That's why I started the class the way that I did. Paul is going to say his discussion isn't about a training class for weak and strong and all of that. He's worried about the food that's been offered in that temple and people thinking because they know a lot and because they know it's just food, they can eat it. And Paul's answer is, no, you can't. And he gives two reasons. The first one is about the weak, but that's not his strongest argument. First, he says, yes, consider the weak. You don't want them to stumble. Chapter 10 is his strongest argument. He says it's fellowship with these demons and with the worship. And you can't do that and then go take the Lord's Supper and think, well, it's no big deal. Paul has a problem with that. And so that's his point. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think that's right. To a to a bad place, to a neglect. Right. You still need to keep some things in mind. Yep, that's right. And in a in a culture where maybe there's been some ultra conservatism, some people binding what God hasn't bound and we learn about some of our liberties, we might go to the other extreme and think, well, anything goes. And Paul's saying that's not true. Chuck, go ahead. Okay, so there are several things to unpack there. I'm going to go. Re- we got to eleven thirty, right? Wait, I'm going to get to you. Tom. Let me let Mike, let me get to this real quick. The idea of situation ethics. I just want to be clear and I get what you mean, Chuck, but that's not what most people mean. Situation ethics in the world means you can do this right today and this wrong tomorrow. And whatever the situation is, you do what feels right to you. The New Testament doesn't go along with that. But I get what you're I know that's not what you meant. I'm just telling you that. Yeah. Yeah. That's just not situation ethics. I wouldn't use that term. But anyway, the idea is that. Yeah, we do need to take these principles and live them out. That's right. We do need to take them and apply them to our daily lives. Yes. And then no again, because um, in. Yeah, no, no offense, but this is just the reality of it. First Corinthians eight, nine and ten and Romans 14 and 15 are similar, yet not identical. Read Romans 14. Nothing's mentioned about idol food and Romans 14 and 15. Paul's dealing with meat versus a vegetarian sort of diet. Paul is saying everything you said in Romans 14. That's exactly right about teaching the weak. Those same principles do not necessarily apply to First Corinthians eight, nine and ten, because in these chapters, there's one additional element that changes the whole discourse. And that is. 
the meat has been offered to idols. That's not brought up in Romans 14, 15. And I know commentators for years have tried to make those things parallel. And there are some similarities, but there are some startling differences. And what Paul is arguing for in Romans 14 is exactly what you're saying. And in chapter 15, he starts out by talking about Christ, his bared with the weak, and we should do the same. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, Paul doesn't say anything about strengthening the weak and doing all of that. They're just different contexts with some similarities. But Paul's driving at something different. And so we got to be careful about saying, well, these are two sister passages. And so because of that, the principles are the same. We do need to educate the weak. I'm not arguing that we don't. I'm just saying to us, see what's in the text. Don't see what we think we know, because we're going to read and impose some things on the text that just aren't there. Paul doesn't mention anything in First Corinthians eight through ten about the weak needing to be strengthened and them being made better. Because at the end of the day, in First Corinthians eight, nine and ten, just keep this overall theme in mind. Paul is on the side of the weak because he doesn't want them to eat the meat in the idol's temple. That's his whole point. So what he would argue for in Romans 14 and 15, strengthening the weak, educating them to be better is exactly right. Great principle. But he wouldn't do that in Corinth because. The weak aren't in a bad position. They've got the truth on this. They don't need to eat the meat in the idol's temple, so they don't need to be strengthened and taught better to do better because the meat is a no-no in Paul's mind. We may have to skip chapter 9 and just go to chapter 10, but that's where Paul says it. You can't eat this meat. It's a no-no. And so principles are similar in Romans 14 and 15 and these chapters, but they're not identical. Paul's having two different discussions and two different contexts. Idolatry is not brought up in Romans 14 at all. It's not Paul's point. He's talking about dietary restrictions. In first Corinthians eight, nine and ten, it's about idol worship. And Paul's saying you can't eat it. He just uses this argument of the weak brother as proof. One example. Why shouldn't you eat this meat? Number one, they're weak people. Why shouldn't you eat this meat? Number two, it's worshiping these idols in the temple. And you can't just do that as a Christian. Now, if you go in that temple, that's bad for you. You can't do that. That's what Paul's really getting at. And so I just want to keep those things separate. I don't want to be overly technical or stickler, but I don't want anybody to leave with any mistaken notions or false ideas. Yeah, I think that's a good principle. I think that's right. You didn't want to call somebody else to stumble. Yeah, so we do. Okay. Good. All right. Now, let's finish out the chapter. I think we can get through the rest of chapter eight. If I miss the hand, we'll get to you. Don't worry. Chapter eight and verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, he will be encouraged if his conscience is weak and eat the food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the person for whom Christ died. And I think that's what the comment was getting at about considering this other individual. Right. And if you consider them in love, thus sinning against your brother. So now Paul says they're sinning. It's not just about, hey, you're stronger than them in verse 12. You sin against your brother, you wound their conscience and you sin against Christ. So if you go ahead and do this anyway, you're going to sin against your brother and you're going to sin against Christ. And then in verse 13, notice what Paul says. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul was willing to totally forego this for the sake of his brother. And he wanted these Christians to do the same thing. All right, let's go through chapter nine quickly here. Paul talks about some of his rights as an apostle, and he uses himself as an example. In verses one through six, he says, I've got freedom. I'm an apostle. And haven't I seen Jesus, our Lord, and you are my workmanship in the Lord. If to others, I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so Paul's going to say, look, I know all about giving up rights and privileges because I'm an apostle. And there are many things I could have done freely. 
But I didn't do those things because I wanted to help and to serve others. In verses 7 through 14, he uses the example of not being supported financially as a preacher, especially among the Corinthians. He preached the gospel free of charge. And he lists in chapter chapter 9, verse 7 through 14, this is his main point. He's saying a preacher is worthy to be paid. And the Old Testament law says that a person can be supported. I could have used those rights. Paul says I could have done those things. But I chose to forego that in order to help other individuals. 16 through 18. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward that in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul says I didn't accept money. Paul said I was able to work and support myself. I wanted to preach the gospel. I needed to preach it and I would have been ashamed not to. And then probably the most famous section in First Corinthians chapter nine is this last part in 19 through 27, where Paul talks about going to different places and notice what Paul would do. I'm in verse 19. Remember, this is all about liberty and freedom. Paul says, though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And so at the end of this, Paul says when he was around people, he became all things to all men that he might save some. And he gave it up in order to reach them with the gospel and to be able to proclaim the gospel freely. And we'll stop there, really, so that we can get into chapter 10 without making a break in the next class. But I appreciate all the comments and all of the discussion. I believe it was good discussion. If you do have any questions about it or anything like that, just let me know and I'd be happy to talk with you.